All right, if you would, please turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, and we're in chapter 6, and I will be reading verses 35 through 40. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he gives me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Amen. Let's pray, and we'll get to the preaching of the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the bread of life, and we ask and pray that you would help us this morning, that you would help me, Lord, to communicate what to your people what it means for Jesus to be the bread of life, and what it means that they shall not hunger, and they shall not thirst if they come, if they believe. Help me make these things plain to them, and may they be built up by these truths, Lord. And may those who are here who do not believe, may they be convinced of these things. Work by your Spirit that they might believe in your Son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jesus now begins his discourse with the crowds formally now now he's he's telling them plainly that he is the bread of life cicero the roman statesman wrote that uh salone one of the seven wise men of greece grew old learning something new every day Every day, he uh, attempted to learn something new that he might grow. And in the Christian life, this principle, this principle is very suiting and fitting for the Christian life. That every day, we ought to be growing. We ought to be growing in our understanding of who God is, of who Christ has done, of the work that the Spirit has performed in us. 
who are God's people? What is the value in God's word? Why is it that we pray? Why do we gather together? Why do we fellowship? Why do we hold ourselves accountable? Why do we do the things that we do? But here in this passage, Jesus uh, tells us plainly. He tells us a truth that uh, should satisfy that it should satisfy all of our desires. That's what the point of this text is. Uh, Jesus is offering to the people satiation. I think that's how you say it. He's, uh, he wants them to be satiated, full, satisfied in Him. So in verse 35, he gives us a statement about himself. He tells us that he is the bread of life. He tells the crowds. Also in this verse, and in verse 36, he tells us something about the crowd, about those who are hearing him. He says that those who come will not thirst, will be hungry and will not thirst, they'll be satisfied. But he says that they have seen him and they do not believe. And then he tells us, about his father. And really, that is verses 37 through 40. So, something about himself, something about the crowds, and something about his father. Let's look at what Jesus tells us about himself. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never thirst, and he who believes in me shall, excuse me, shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Uh, the, these two negative statements, never hunger, never thirst, it's a way of making a statement of impossibility. It is impossible for the person who comes to Christ to hunger and thirst. That is the point that Jesus is making. The impossibility of coming to him and having hunger and having thirst. In essence, Jesus is saying, if you come to me, you will be full. You will be, your desires will be satiated. Now, he describes those who come to him in two ways. He says that he is the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Coming and believing. And these are ongoing. The person who comes to the Lord Jesus, he's not just talking about one time. But the person who repeatedly comes to the Lord Jesus. The person who repeatedly believes in the Lord Jesus. And these uh, terms, believing and coming, are, they're, they're overlapping. It's not two different things. Jesus isn't saying, he just finished saying there's one thing, right? Labor for the bread which the Son of Man will give you. What is the labor that we must do that we may labor the works of God? Believe in the Son. This is the one work you must do. Now, coming and believing are overlapping terms. 
And they're sort of looking at faith, because that's what he's talking about, from two different angles. And one is that there is a, a very true sense in faith where we must go to Christ. Faith is not just like a passive reception of Jesus. You know, I want to receive the Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, and enter me. That's not faith. Coming to Christ means, of course, believing in Him, but it is the active aspect of coming. And it's a continual pursuit of the Lord Jesus. For uh, the men and women there, of course, it would have meant literally coming to him. Here's, I'm, I'm right here in the synagogue. Well, I'm going to come and I'm going to follow you around. For us, we find him in the word. We come to the word to see the Lord Jesus. It's the language he uses later on in the chapter. We go to prayer to pour our, our hearts to the Lord Jesus. We gather with his people and we interact with them. And as we interact with them, you know what we see in them? Not their sin mainly, but Christ who's being formed in them. And as we interact with them, he is being shaped, uh, he's being uh, formed in us also. The exhortation to them was come, come to me now. Follow me, leave all of your things, become my disciple, devote yourself to a life with me and to us as we, we come to his word, we come to his people, we come to him in prayer, we come to him in praise, and we believe. We believe those things that are revealed to us about him in his word. We believe that he is the son of God. He is the God-man. We believe that he came into the world. He's not some mythical character. He's not like Frodo or Bilbo, right? That's not how Jesus is a real man. And he is the God-man. And even now, Jesus is the God-man who is in heaven and will one day return to judge the just and the unjust, and we believe that his perfect life is sufficient to pay the debt for all of our sins. There is sufficiency in his person, and there is sufficiency in his work. I can have peace with God because of Christ. These are the things that we believe, and many more, of course. But we come to him, and we believe in him that we may not hunger, that we may not be in a state of hunger. Uh, Of course, Jesus is is speaking figuratively. He's talking about spiritual hunger. Uh, What Jesus is talking about is the chasm that exists in the soul of man that drives him to seek satisfaction in everything else but God. This is what man does. When a a fallen man, a fallen woman, a fallen child, does not have a vital relationship with 
the Lord Jesus Christ. They seek to fill themselves with whatever the world has to offer. Sometimes it's not overtly sinful. The guy is just a hard worker. I mean, he just he barely sleeps. He's wearing his fingers down to the knuckles working, right? Because he wants money. And he thinks that all of that money is going to satisfy him. So he's going to store it up in barns, and then one day God's going to show up and say, you fool, your life is required of you. And sometimes people uh, think that the way that they're going to, to fill the void that they have in their heart is by uh, gross, external acts of sin. And they uh, drink and drug and fornicate and um, they are pursuing delights. They're, they're trying to find some kind of satisfaction. And basically what they're doing is they're wringing dry paper trying to get water out of it. It never satisfies their soul. And they want, so they want more and more and more and more and grosser sins. And Jesus, Jesus is saying that if you come to me, I will satisfy your Soul, this longing, this thirst, this desire that man has, he can satisfy it. Have you ever seen a raccoon eating garbage? Have a witness a raccoon eating garbage? Um, raccoons in captivity, right? Like I've seen, yeah, I've seen, I've personally seen raccoons eating garbage. But raccoons in captivity, and if they're around large bodies of water, they'll wash their food. They're not washing it so it could be clean. They're wa- they wash it really so that because of the texture, I guess when they eat it, there's something about it being wet where they like it. It's, they like it more. When, a, when, a, when, a, when, an unbe- when even a Christian, when a person, right, is... Uh, you know, they coddle their sin or they, they, they change the name of a particular sin, right? He's, he's, he's not a liar. He's a good businessman, right? I'm not nosy. I'm concerned, right? I'm not gossiping. I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm expressing my concerns for people, Right? Uh, we're going to pray about it anyway, so it doesn't make any sense if I tell everybody everybody's business. When we do that, we're, we're like that raccoon, you know? We're, we've got a dirty diaper, and you put it in the water, and then you stick it in your mouth. It's still a dirty diaper. Right? It's, it's still what it is. That's what we do when we try to justify our sins. Christians do this. I mean, Christians have become experts at justifying their sins. They, we, we justify all kinds of sins in the name of even being Christians. You know? What, uh, you know why aren't you kind to your neighbors? They're unconverted. <laughs> They're not Christians. You know? Um, your co-workers, you're not kind to them. Why not? Well, they're not Christians. Why do you talk bad about them? Well, they're not Christians. 
and then all, all kinds of sins, right? So uh, Christian, uh, Christians, they, they go onto the internet and they look at pornography. They cheat on their spouse. And what's their justification? Well, my wife, you know, she, we're not intimate the way that we used to be, right? My husband's a little chubbier than he was when I first married him, right? He's got a little, you know, more, he's not attractive anymore. I don't like him. And we justify all of, all of the sins that we commit. And we're basically like a raccoon cleaning garbage. I'm trying to wash it, trying to make it look nice so that it's palatable. But that never satisfies the soul. Coming to the Lord Jesus does. It's a person who satiates, who fills. And it is because Christ has been appointed by the Father to satisfy the soul. When men think about this particular concept, it, it can be a little difficult because Jesus is a man, and what do you mean he's satisfying my soul? That, does, that just doesn't sound masculine to me. Right? It doesn't sound strong. But I would propose to you, it's the most masculine thing a man can do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God the Father, your Creator, has set Him forward as the only means by which you can be a good man. So he must be received. He must be received the way that he is offered to us in the Gospels, not the way that we want to have Jesus. And see, that, that was a problem with the crowds, right? They wanted the Jesus that gave them a lot of bread, the Jesus that gave them fish, the Jesus that did miracles for them. But they didn't want the Jesus who was a prophet, a priest, and a king. And that is the Jesus that we need. You see, because of sin, our conscience is messed up. We think that um, sin is fine as long as I'm doing it. But when other people are doing it, that's a, it, it then it becomes a problem. And at times we even fall under the convictions of, of false guilt, all kinds of false guilt, because we don't understand the word of God. Yet Christ comes into the world as a prophet to make the word of God clear to us. The more we understand the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he accomplished, and what he is doing even now in his people and in the world, the, the, the burden that our consciences have, they're, they're lifted. Many of the people who struggle with all kinds of anxiety and depression and mental problems, it's because their conscience is just crushing them. But Christ has come to relieve that, to lift it off of a person. Even our affections, we are, we're either we're drawn to things we ought not to be drawn to, right? Because we think those things ought to satisfy us. And we're repelled by things that are intended to cause delight. Our affections are skewed. And what the Lord Jesus Christ does by the work of His Spirit is 
He makes us alive. He, he renews and restores and strengthens right affections. He does this by means of His Word, by His Word read, and He does it by His Word preached. Our hearts uh, and our minds need governing. We need to submit to a rule. We, we were not created to be autonomous, and Jesus comes as a king to rule and reign over His people. These are just three aspects of Christ's work. We could look at his atonement also. So you look at his person and what he does as a prophet, a priest, and a king. We could say even a mediator, a surety, an intercessor. But then when you focus upon his work, what he accomplished on the cross, the guilty conscience that you're walking around with could be healed and you can have peace with God if you come to Christ. There's, there's no need to have a guilty and defiled conscience because the death of Christ brings peace. Not only that, there may be sins even, the sins that easily ensnare you and that you have been trapped by and they, they've made your life an absolute wreck. Well, Jesus, even now, he says to these people, he says, I am the bread of life. I can satisfy you not only by my person, but by my work. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God. So when Jesus offers himself as bread, he offers himself as the only mean that can sustain spiritual life and that he is the only source of eternal life. This is what he's saying to the people. And he says this to all, to whoever comes to him. Anyone that comes to him. If there is a desire, even the smallest inkling, to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not because of some virtue in you. That is because of the work of the Spirit. Man, dead in trespasses and sins, is unwilling and unable to come to God. But God himself will enliven a person to come to him and to believe in him. Yet, there are also men and women, as Jesus says in verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. So he tells them about himself, that he is the bread of life. He is the source of life to them. And that all who come to him, he will satisfy their thirst, he will satisfy their hunger. Yet, I'm standing before you and you won't come to me. And here Jesus is, he's identifying a problem. They don't see how he could be the source of eternal life. There is an inability. They can't perceive it. How is it that this man could be who he says he is? And this draws out a, a, a very uh, 
serious biblical truth. And he tells it to us in verse 37 when he speaks about his father. So he told us about himself. He told us, told us about the crowd. Anyone who comes. If you come, if you believe, you will not thirst, you will not hunger. But you've seen me. And, and there, of, of course, Jesus doesn't mean that you've seen me with your eyeballs. You could identify me in a crowd. The seeing here is kind of like the word knowing in the, uh, in the Bible, where uh, Adam knew his wife. He didn't know that her name was... That, what that doesn't mean is that he knew her name was Eve. He knew her intimately. These people had an intimate acquaintance with Jesus. They had seen him do things that no other man could do. They had seen him perform miracles. He had supplied food for them in the wilderness. That's the language that Mark uses in Mark chapter 6. And they had heard him teach in ways that nobody else had taught, confounding the religious leaders and preaching the gospel in the way that God said the Messiah would come and preach the gospel. So they had seen him. They had seen Jesus do all of these things, and yet they did not believe. Why? Why is it that they were unable to truly see that he was truly the bread from heaven? Verse 37 explains this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes... To me, I will by no means cast out. Two statements there. And they help us understand exactly what Jesus is saying in the previous verse when he talks about those who come and those who believe. Jesus here is, uh, he's doing some theological discrimination there's a category of people that will come to Jesus. There's a category of people who will not come to Jesus. Who are those that will come? All that the Father gives me will come to me. Those are the ones that come to the Son. That's why we can say with earnest that if a person has a desire to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, come! Anybody who, who wants to believe in Him, if you want to believe in the Lord Jesus, believe, repent, follow Him. Take up your cross, all of the biblical language. Why? Because if, if that desire is genuine, it is a work of God the Father. God the Father has wrought a work in the mind and in the heart. And therefore, because the enlightening of the mind and of the heart has occurred, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. He will not reject them. Because when there is earnest pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a work of God. So now Jesus begins to tell us something about God. God is God the Father is intimately involved in the faith of Christians. 
I think rightly, um, there, is a, there is an emphasis in the Christian church on the Lord Jesus Christ, and rightly so. He's our Savior and our Redeemer. He came into the world. He became a man. He died upon the cross. There's that right emphasis. But sometimes what can happen is we can have an imbalance and these faulty conceptions about who God the Father is can come into our mind. But it is God the Father Himself who has chosen His people to come to the Lord Jesus. It is with great care and concern that the Father has gathered a bride for His Son. And because of that, Jesus does not reject any of them. Whoever wants to come to the Son can come to the Son. Look, people hear these verses and immediately, uh, so I'm a Calvinistic as you could get, right? But when I, when I read these verses, I don't think there are some people that I'm not going to preach the gospel to because they're not elect. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if there is a desire in your heart to believe in me, the Father did that. And you know what you ought to do? Is say, thank God. Thank God for his work, because apart from him, I can do nothing. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Why? For I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's why I came. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall, shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. That's why I came. I'm here talking to all of you people. The, 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 you know, let's say there's a th uh, several hundred. The, the entire 20,000 isn't there. They, they would have needed a fleet of boats to cross the sea. But let's say there's 500. There's 500 people there. And all 500 of them have a faulty conception of who Christ is. They want some guy that can give them bread. That's what they want. And Jesus says, even to all of them, if you have a desire to believe in me, that's why I came. I'm offering myself to you as a savior to satisfy your soul eternally. Even now, I'll satisfy your desires. If you come to me, if you continue to come to me, if you continue to believe in me, not a decision you made, you know, 45 years ago, you wrote something in your Bible, you stood up, you signed a card, you said a prayer, and then you basically lived like a devil. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about continuing to come, continuing to believe, persevering in the faith. He has come down from heaven to do His Father's will. What was His Father's will? His Father's will was to gather a people that might be saved for his glory. He states it plainly here. He continues to tell us about his father. It, it, it's as if, uh, when you read the Gospels, note this. I have some examples, but we don't have time to go to all of them. When Jesus begins to talk about the father, he doesn't stop. 
It's it, because he came into the world to, re, to reveal the Father's heart for his people. Why, why do you think he says to his disciples, have you been with me this long and you don't know the Father? Is that what's going on, Philip? Because I came to reveal him. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is the will, verse 39, of, of, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, not one. If God has worked in the heart of a person a desire to come to the Lord Jesus and to continue to come to the Lord Jesus and to continue to depend upon the Lord Jesus, that person will be raised on the last day. There is a way where people explain the concept, the biblical truth of the perseverance of the saints, and they'll say, well, once saved, always saved. Yeah, I, you know, I know my uncle, he's a, uh, he's a, a bank-robbing pirate, but, <laughs> you know, he's going to make it to heaven because, he, no. If... Um, Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. Now, he doesn't say that the fruit are going to be, you know, fresh, plump, and massive. There might be, you know, just a couple of scraggly apples on that tree. And sometimes that happens. But there will be fruit. Because it's Jesus' business to produce it in the life of his people. That's why the Father sent him. Not only is Jesus concerned with your sins being forgiven, Jesus is also concerned and involved in ensuring that you live a life that is pleasing to God. He's not just worried about getting you know, people into heaven. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me, you think about that, right? This, this gift that the father gives to the son. The son is a good steward. He holds that gift close to his bosom and he doesn't lose any of them. If, if, if he called you, you're coming. You'll be at the party. You're not going to lose the invitation. No, no, you're coming. You will be in heaven. He says it here plainly. I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. That's a promise that we can hang all of our hopes on. If you are a Christian, you could, uh, you could, uh, you could go bankrupt, lose your entire family, and have a terminal disease, and still rejoice. I'll be raised on the last day. Now, he, he, he adds more. And here, of course, what he's telling us about the Father is the will of God's, and if you've noticed the repetition, is the Father's will. This is the, the desire of the Father, or the way that Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2 is this is God's good pleasure. This is what pleases God. It pleases God to give the Son that, Men might be saved. 
It pleased the Father to send the Son into the world that those who might be saved would be kept to the end. And now he adds one more thing. This is the will of my Father who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. You see, he says to them, you see me, you don't believe me. But now he's talking about a different kind of seeing. The seeing he's talking about here is spiritual perception, where a person sees Christ, and for us, for us, of course, it's in reading the scriptures, in hearing the word preach, we see Christ and we say, He is the bread of life. I am beginning to understand, maybe not fully, but I am beginning to understand how this man can satisfy the desires of my soul. I'm beginning to see it. My sins can be forgiven. I can have peace with God through him. Not only that, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. That's exactly what he says uh, at the end of verse 39. The um, redundancy is not always bad. He wants them to hear it. Because what the people, again, uh, to, set, uh, to bring us back to the context, what the people are concerned with is their temporal life. They're worried about temporary things. They're worried about 75, 85 years on earth living comfortably, right? If, you know, if I could get another plastic hips and two knees so I can walk around till I'm 90, I'm good, Right? But they don't know that when they take their last breath, they will enter into the presence of the living God. And if they have not seen Christ and believe in Christ, they'll be in God's presence. But they'll be in the presence of a God who has no more grace to offer the rebellious. They'll be in the presence of a God who is pouring out his just wrath upon them. Hell is not a place where God is not. He is there in judgment, in eternal judgment. And today, as he did here, he offers his son to you. And he says, believe in me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So, Jesus tells us about himself, that he is the source of eternal life. He can sustain us spiritually and He can sustain us eternally. He tells us about those who hear Him. All who come to Him, He'll receive. All who believe in Him will be saved. He also tells us that there are some who hear. They see. They don't believe. Why? Because it's the Father's work to cause faith. And those whom the Father awakens, they are drawn to the Son and they are kept to eternal life. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. We ask that you would uh, help us, Lord, the Christians who are here, to continue to believe and to continue to come to the Lord Jesus that our souls might be satisfied. And we ask, Lord, that those who are here who are not Christians, Lord, that you would work in their hearts, Lord, that you would enlighten their minds and give them understanding and cause them, Lord God, to be born again, that they might believe in the Son and have life. In his name we pray. Amen.